Eden, thank you for reading so clearly for us. Good morning, everybody. Um, In case you've forgotten, our our mission as a church is to be torchbearers together for Africa. And uh, it was a great joy for me this week to receive an email from our brother Innocent in Malawi. Innocent was at George Whitfield College, I suppose, four or five years ago. And he went home and he pastors two congregations and he also lectures at the Evangelical Bible College of Malawi. Anyway, he he actually contacted me to ask for my prayer request, which is rather nice. But he also gave me a news bulletin. And would you believe it that in 2016 they had only five members in one church and now they have 126. Uh, It is just amazing what God is doing there at the moment. And uh, he has asked us to pray as follows. They're running a number of projects aimed at empowering the women in their community financially. Can we pray for them uh, in that? They're also planning to set up um, a literacy class. Well, that, of course, is terribly important, isn't it? People can't understand the Bible if they can't read it. And then they're also trying to set up um, a daycare facility for children of working parents. So that's marvellous, isn't it? God is at work. Uh, through Innocent in Malawi and I take it as a wonderful confirmation of our mission as a church here to be torchbearers together for Africa. Anyway, now we must get to Romans. Won't you please have your Bible open at page 799 and uh, also have the white bulletin open please with the outline of where we're going in the next few minutes and I'm going to pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. Will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each of us might be conscious that we are listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus, calling us now to follow him into the future. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, imagine with me that there is um, an art competition in a prestigious upmarket art gallery. And uh, some of the country's greatest artists have been working for weeks uh, to produce their finest work. And it's well worth their effort because the prize money is 10 million rand. Uh, Finally, the big day arrives... And a large crowd gathers to view the marvellous paintings and the sculptures. And a team of experts goes around the gallery examining each of the exhibits carefully. At the end of the afternoon, the head judge announces their decision. And to everybody's amazement, he says that none of the artists are going to win the prize. Instead, they award the prize to a member of the public who just happened to wander into the exhibition to see what was going on. And they've awarded him the 10 million rand prize. Now, you can kind of imagine the outrage at that, can't you? 
And it gives us just a tiny sense of the shock in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Uh, Look with me at chapter 9, verse 30, on page 799. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Now, of course, the parallel isn't precise but you can get a sense of the shock. Who on earth were these Gentiles who knew absolutely nothing about the law of God, made absolutely no effort to obey it, and yet they received the gift of being right with God? Whereas the Jews who knew God's law and laboured strenuously to obey every detail, they did not receive the gift of righteousness with God. Now that is the tension in these chapters in Romans and it is a situation that raises very big questions. Can God be trusted? I mean, hadn't God made promises to Israel that they would be his special people? But now if those who've rejected Christ are not his people doesn't it mean God hasn't kept his word? And if he hasn't kept his word to the Jews can we actually be certain that he'll keep his word to us? Because he says at the end of chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Can God be trusted? And what's more, is God really just? I mean, it seems so unfair, doesn't it, that these people who worked so hard to obey the law are not included amongst God's people. Well, in chapters 9 to 11, Paul is grappling with some of these issues. Last week in chapter 9, we saw that the Jews did not have an an exclusive claim on God. In fact, no one deserves to be a member of God's family. Because membership of God's family is only ever by God's sovereign, merciful choice. And some of you might have been thinking, well, this all sounds grossly unfair that it's all in God's hands. Can't we do anything? Well, this week in chapter 10, we get the other side of the coin. Because if Romans chapter 9 is all about God's sovereignty in salvation, chapter 10 is all about human responsibility. And Paul shows how the Jews are at fault. They've rejected Christ, but they should have known better. Now, let me pause on that, because it may be that my introduction this morning hasn't grabbed you. You may be thinking, well, look, Simon, I'm not actually a Jew, and I'm not especially interested in uh, why the Jews might have rejected Jesus all those years ago. It seems so remote, so far removed from our situation. And so perhaps you're not yet on the edge of your seat. Can I say to you this morning, you jolly well ought to be. Because the issue in chapter 10 is actually the most important issue that any of us will ever have to face. It's far more important than who you marry, how many children you have, 
how you get on at college, what job you do, where you live, who you vote for in the elections on Wednesday. It's far more important than any of those things, far more important than you can possibly imagine. Because the issue is, how can I get right with God? And that, of course, is an eternal issue. And the Jews missed it. And the tragedy, you see, is that still today there are many, many people, religious people, who miss that fundamental point. Therefore, they never get right with God. So what I want to do this morning is to try and show you three simple but very profound truths from the text that answer the question, how do I get right with God? How do I receive salvation? Number one, it must be received, not achieved. Number two, it depends on Christ's work, not ours. And number three, it's offered to everybody, not some. And then after we've done that, we'll think about some of the consequences of those truths in verses 14 to 21 at the end. So, how do we get right with God? Number one, it must be received, not achieved. And here we're zooming in to chapter 9, verse 30, through to chapter 10, verse 3. Now, I'm sure that you've been taught, like I was, that if you want anything in life, you've got to work hard for it. Uh, By and large, that is how the world works. Uh, You know perfectly well, if you want to do well academically, or if you want promotion at work, you've got to work hard. But you see, when it comes to having a relationship with Almighty God, we will never be able to work hard enough. We'll never be able to achieve enough because it depends on a gift. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Now, just in passing, won't you please notice that Paul isn't here writing a dry academic paper to be studied only at college. Paul is passionate about this. He longs that they might be right with God. But they're not. Why not? Verse 2, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. You see, friends, it's perfectly possible, and this might be true for somebody here this morning, it's perfectly possible to be very sincere, but to be sincerely wrong. What have the Jews got wrong? Verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now that word righteousness is a very key word in the letter to the Romans. We won't understand Romans if we don't know what righteousness means. So let me tell you about a young man called Martin. Uh, Martin was a law student 
And one day he was on a journey on horseback and he was caught in the most terrible thunderstorm. And uh, a bolt of lightning struck just a few feet away from the horse. And Martin thought to himself, well, that was a close one. Uh, If that had been any nearer, I would have died. And the more he thought about that, the more he realised he wasn't quite ready to die. He felt guilty. He wasn't ready to meet God. And so what he did was he, he desperately tried to pursue the three medieval ladders to heaven in order to get right with God. So he pursued the path of scholarship and he was absolutely brilliant academically. He followed the path of good works. He uh, clothed and fed the poor. And he followed the path of religion. He quit his job as a, a lawyer and he became a monk. He went on pilgrimages. Uh, he even went to Rome and climbed up the steps of St. Peter's on his knees. But all along he knew he wasn't right with God. By this time, uh, Martin was a lecturer at a Bible school, a worthy occupation. And uh, at one point he was lecturing his students on the letter to the Romans and he started to think very carefully about what Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 17. You don't need to look it up. But in that famous verse, Paul says, For in the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Now, our NIV Bibles have the translation righteousness from God. But there are lots of other translations that uh, put it like this. They talk about a righteousness of God. And in Martin's time, it was always assumed that Paul was talking about the righteousness of God. In other words, God's perfect moral righteous character, his goodness. And as Martin thought about the the goodness of God, his moral goodness, he felt terribly guilty because, of course, he knew that he fell far short of that perfection. It just made him feel wretched. But then he thought about the rest of that verse, chapter 1, verse 17, which says that this righteousness is by faith from first to last. And he thought, well, hang on a minute. How on earth can God's perfection be by faith? And then he realised that what Paul was talking about was not the righteousness of God, meaning God's moral perfection, but rather a righteousness from God, meaning the gift of being right with God. And that righteousness is available to anyone simply by faith. Well, Martin, of course, was Martin Luther who started the Protestant Reformation and he said that Romans chapter 1 verse 17 became for him a gateway into heaven. And you see, in Paul's day, the tragedy was 
that Paul's fellow Jews had not grasped that righteousness or being in the right with God was possible not because of anything we do but as a gift to be received by faith. So where did the Jews go wrong? Chapter 10 verse 3 They did not know the righteousness that comes from God and here's the point sought to establish their own. And of course the result of that was either a very ugly pride or hopeless despair. Because of course no one can get right with God by their own efforts. And yet of course it's a striking thing isn't it that multitudes today think they can. Surely that was the reason that the Lord Jesus taught one of his most searching and challenging parables. Uh, You know it well, but we can't hear it too often. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed, Thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I fast once a week. I give a tenth of my money to the poor. So he was very proud, wasn't he? Notice he was a religious man. Uh, No doubt his sermons were all about grace. But in Jesus' story, when he prayed, what he was saying to God was, it's because of my works and it's because of what I do that I know you'll hear my prayers. By contrast, the tax collector, one of the most despised and hated men in the community, he couldn't even look up to heaven. And he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, with, of course, the full authority of God, I tell you, that man went home justified. And in the Greek, that is the same word that we're thinking about this morning. In other words, that man went home righteous before God. Can I tell you that that parable is an absolutely perfect illustration of Romans 9 and 10. Righteousness must be received, not achieved. Second, do you want to be right with God? Well, it depends on Christ's work, not ours. And here we're in chapter 10 from verses 4 to 10. Come with me to verse 4. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now verse 4 is another of those verses uh, in Romans that's been the subject of endless debate amongst the experts. Christ is the end of the law. What on earth does that mean? Does it mean end in the sense of termination? Uh, So, as it were, the law is now obsolete and we don't have to pay any more attention to it. Or does it mean terminus, end in the sense of terminus, like a railway terminus? Uh, so that Christ, as it were, is the goal, the destination of the law, the place towards which the law was always heading. 
Now, lots and lots of people have argued for that. And they've said that the great error uh, in Judaism was failing to understand the meaning of their own law. They missed the point of it. They they failed to realise that the law was actually pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in him. Now, that is undoubtedly true. The law is fulfilled perfectly by the Lord Jesus. But I'm not actually convinced it's what Paul is saying here. I think here Paul is talking about termination. What he's saying is, once you've understood who Christ is and what Christ has done, that is the end of any attempt to establish your own righteousness by obedience. Do you understand that? Somebody say yes. Good. Once you've realised that Christ has done everything necessary for you to get right with God, it is absolutely ridiculous for you to try and do it by your own performance. It's the end of that way of thinking. It's the end of that way of living. And Paul goes on to contrast these two ways of thinking. So justification by law or by works he talks about in verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. Now that's actually a quote from Leviticus in the Old Testament and very likely um, it's a verse that was being quoted by the people who were opposing Paul's message. Paul's view that The only way to get right with God is by faith. And Paul's agreeing with them. He's saying, yes, Moses did teach that if you really obey the entire law of God, you would live. But of course, they were wrong in thinking that anybody could possibly achieve that. Does that make God sound unfair? that he lays down a standard that nobody could ever hope to achieve. Has God been playing games with us? Well, no, he hasn't. God has always intended uh, that in convicting us of our sin, the law would point us to our Saviour. Now, that is the meaning of verse 6 and following. Look at verse 6 with me. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. Let me try and illustrate this. The Freemasons have a ceremony. And in the ceremony, they say these words. Thus, by square conduct, meaning righteous conduct, level steps and upright intentions, we hope to ascend to these immortal mansions where all goodness emanates. In other words, 
By our own efforts, we hope to climb up to heaven, to ascend to God. But the Bible, you see, says no. It's not about you. It's not about what you do. The Bible does not say who will ascend into heaven. The Hindus have a ceremony every few years, I think, in which literally millions of people gather on the banks of the Ganges. And uh, they believe that if they go down into the river at a particular time of year, their sins will be washed away as they go down into the water. But Paul says the Bible doesn't say that. It's not about what you do. The Bible does not say who will descend into the deep. No, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ who's descended from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, the life we couldn't live, and who's died a sacrificial death, taking upon himself the punishment we deserve for our inability to obey God's law. You see, the point is that the job's been done. It's finished. So God's word to us is not here's what you've got to do. God's word to us is, just receive a gift. How do we do that? Verse 8. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we're proclaiming. Now here it is. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's not about you. It's all being done by Jesus. So it's really very straightforward. Respond with faith to the message about what Christ has done, and that response contains two elements. You need to confess something with your mouth and you need to believe something in your heart. First, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Now some of you did that earlier this year when you were baptised in our swimming pool. And others have done it at different times in different ways and in a sense I suppose you do it every Sunday when you come to church. By coming to church, you are effectively saying, Jesus is Lord, I'm a Christian. But you see, what Paul is saying is that it's not enough simply to confess with your mouth. Because after all, everyone in South Africa says, I'm a Christian. Now Paul says, what about your heart? Do you really believe these things? For others... Uh, you do believe these things in your heart. Uh, You do believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus is on the throne of the universe this morning. You believe that he's coming back and that one day we will be with him forever in our resurrection bodies in a renewed universe. You believe that. But are you confessing these things with your lips? Do the people around you know that you're a Christian? Do you ever mention it to your friends or to your family? 
Have you been baptised? And by being baptised, basically said publicly, as far as I'm concerned, Jesus is Lord. So, are you with me so far? To be in the right with God is something that must be received and not achieved. It depends on Christ's work, not ours. And thirdly, it's offered to everyone, not some. Come with me to verses 11 to 13. And as I read them, I want you to listen out carefully for the inclusive words. Words like anyone, or all, or everyone. Verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now you see, by insisting that the way to get right with God was obedience to the Jewish law and by insisting on minute observance of every detail, the Jews in Paul's day were being exclusive. In essence, what they were saying was, if you want to get right with God, you've got to become a Jew. But you see, that's not the Gospel. The Gospel is inclusive. It's saying that everything has already been done for you by the Lord Jesus Christ, so that anyone, whatever their background, whatever they've done, can receive this gift, the gift of righteousness, simply by faith. So notice in verse 12, a universal claim and a universal offer. The universal claim is that the same Lord is Lord of all. Now that is an absolutely stunning claim to make, isn't it? Our society in the West has become so dreadfully politically correct that there are many places today where you'd be arrested for saying that. And it was a bit like that in Paul's day. It was dangerous to say there's only one Lord. Now you see, the problem we face is that today everybody wants to hear it's up to you. Up to you. Uh, You can follow whichever God you want. Uh, Jesus, that's fine. Uh, Allah, yes, that's absolutely splendid. Um, Krishna, marvellous. Buddha, no problem. Or perhaps, perhaps in our context, um, the God of the family. Because there are many people, aren't there, who say, well, the family's got to come first. Or maybe it's the God of money. Because people say, well, you know, we've got to eat, haven't we? So we've got to pursue the money. Or maybe it's the God of relationships. Because people say, you know, it's being in a relationship that gives my life meaning and significance. 
It's a God, you see, when you say that. But the Bible says there is only one God. Only one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is only one Lord. His name is Jesus. And there is only one way of salvation. And that is by trusting in his death. Now you might be, uh, you could be an atheist, you could be a Muslim, you could be a Hindu, doesn't actually matter. Jesus Christ is Lord. Whatever we believe, whatever we think, whatever background we come from, that is true for everybody. Jesus is Lord. And that universal claim, notice this, is matched by a universal offer in verse 11. Have a look at it. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Interestingly, that is actually a quotation from the same uh, part of Isaiah that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9 and verse 33. We read it a bit earlier. It's the verse that talks about the coming king and describes him as a rock that makes people fall and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It's an interesting analogy, isn't it? But living as we do, surrounded by mountains, it's not terribly hard for us to imagine somebody having a lovely Sunday afternoon walk on a mountain path and failing to notice a rather large stone. And uh, because they don't notice it, they trip over it and fall flat on their face. But you see, for those who see the rock, the rock of chapter 9, verse 33, and recognise it for what it is, that rock becomes a stepping stone to salvation. And that's Jesus. Because everything, absolutely everything, depends on how we respond to him. Some people stumble over him. I find that, uh, by and large, people don't actually mind me talking about God. Uh, Nothing especially offensive about that. But as soon as I start talking about Jesus as the revelation of God and as the way to God, well, people don't like it at all. A friend of mine was speaking at a golf day. Uh, He gave a short, simple talk about the Christian faith. And uh, after the talk, the man sitting next to him said that he'd been going to church nearly all his life every week. But he said to my friend, are you seriously telling me that if I want to get right with God, I've got to trust Jesus? And my friend said, well, yes I am, because that's what the Bible says. And for that man, it was a major stumbling stone. He was deeply offended. He was was humiliated by the notion that it didn't depend on something he did. Because that way of getting right with God appeals to our pride, doesn't it? So when we're told, no, you have to depend on what somebody else has done on your behalf, you've got to receive charity, well, many people stumble. But friends, it's the only way. 
To be in the right with God, it must be received and not achieved. It depends on Christ's work, not ours, and it is offered to everyone, not some. Two vital applications as we close from verses 14 to 21. Application number one, we must get the message out. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There is an extraordinary and relentless logic in those verses, isn't there? I mean, how can I call on Jesus if nobody's ever told me what he's done? I need someone to preach the truth to me. Can I say that I think sometimes we are way too apologetic and embarrassed about the Christian faith. Uh, We're almost embarrassed to talk to outsiders uh, about Jesus and about the need to get right with God. But of course, it is the best news in the world. There will always be people who aren't interested. But for those who do understand what it means... Well, you know perfectly well, it's utterly life-transforming, isn't it? So, my friend, what about you? Have you been sent? Can I say, if you're a Christian, the risen Christ has sent you. He sent you to your family. He sent you to your friends. He sent you to your neighbourhood. He sent you to your office, to your school, or wherever it is you work. How will they hear unless someone tells them? And quite frankly, who will tell them if not you? You see, we've got to get the message out. Number two, we must respond with faith. Uh, This is verses 16 to 21. We're not going to read all of them. But the focus here comes back onto Israel and there's an important lesson. Do you remember I said chapter 9 was all about divine sovereignty in salvation. God's call. God chooses his people. But chapter 10 is all about human responsibility. Because by and large, Israel rejected the message and that is why they're not part of God's family just look at verse 16 but not all the Israelites accepted the good news for Isaiah says Lord who has believed our message the point is God gave them every chance but they didn't like what they heard And so those chilling words in verse 21. God says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Friends, our God is wonderfully patient. Don't take him for granted. You know, there might be somebody here this morning who's heard this message a million times. 
You know the way to get right with God is by trusting in Jesus and not in anything you've done. You know these things. You might actually believe them intellectually, but you've never done anything with it. Friends, it is not enough to hear. It is not enough to understand. You need to call on the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. And today would be a marvellous day for you to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've done everything necessary for us to be right with you. Help us to stop trying to achieve it on our own, but simply to trust in you and in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask it for his name's sake.